Welcome to Uncorked Monthly. This is Mark Allen Powers, and I am excited about today's featured interview. I am with Jeff Morgan, winemaker at Covenant Wines. His journey to become a winemaker started from his passion for food and music. Listen in as Jeff shares his wonderful life journey from musician to winemaker. Welcome back to Uncorked Monthly, everyone. This is Mark Powers, and today I have the privilege to speak with Jeff Morgan, winemaker at Covenant Wines. So, you know, I've, I've said this numerous times in my life, and I always say our journey through life is a collection of experiences, and those experiences are what make each and every one of us uniquely different and special as people, and you've been on one heck of an impressive journey, Jeff. Well, I don't know if it's impressive, but it's definitely been uh, interesting, and uh, it's taken me to a lot of places. So, yes, that, it's, uh, it's been a long road. That's fantastic. I mean, I've, uh, I had an opportunity to spend a little bit of time digging into your background, your re- you know, just research that I can find on you. And, and what I understand is before becoming a wine maker, and, uh, I mean, you, you, you were actually a musician. Yeah, I was um, actually educated in France in the French mm-hmm. National Conservatory System, and then eventually I became the band leader and the saxophone player at the Grand Casino in Monte Carlo, uh, like Monaco and Prince Rainier, Princess Grace and all that. And um, wow. that's where I got into wine. I, uh, that's where I discovered wine. You know, I grew up in New York City, and by the time mm-hmm. I got to France in my late teens, um, I, you know, they don't wait to 21 to start drinking there. I, was, I discovered you know, at the student lunch cafeteria, you know, they were serving us half bottles of wine for lunch and i realized wow i've been missing something here so that was kind of my introduction to the good life nice yeah i thought i read you know my research i read something about that where it was kind of like the um the moment or the epiphany or something for you where you were going through this line and they were serving up i think it's like some kind of a salad and then some cheese platter and at the end they asked you if you want white or red and i thought i read something about that so yeah, that's so that impressive, was kind of Mark. Like you you moment. remembered that story. Yeah, it was a fifty cent lunch, two francs in those days. They still had francs. Uh, yeah. Fifty cent lunch where if you for an extra twenty five cents, an extra franc, you could get the white wine or the red wine yeah. with your <laughs> with your lunch. Yeah. Whatever what it was, and yeah, that, that was that it, was my so. that was my my wine epiphany was wow. I like I've been eating badly all my life, and I'm gonna I'm gonna learn how to eat here in France, even if I don't learn how to play music. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. So then I, you know, so what I'd like to understand is, you know, I'm, I, your journey is, is, so the readers of Uncorked Monthly, as we continue to grow as a publication, they, we hear all too often, they love the stories behind the, the winemaker or behind the vineyard owner, or whomever we're interviewing at the time. And, and, and it, because it makes it more real, right? They love to learn about the person the, the passion, everything that they uh, that goes into what the, obviously the product would be, and so with that being said, you know, as as you, I'm, I'm, I want to touch on your your story about a musician for a moment because I think I think that it, from what I've read on you, and it just seems like as an individual, as a person in life, the passions of one in, one thing that you do and you love does kind of translate and carry over into the next passion. Uh, I mean, would you agree to that? Is you, any of that musical, that passion you have for music and what music was all about, does that carry over into winemaking? Um, I think it does. I mean, I, I feel blessed to have a passion for anything. You know, a lot of, 
young people that I meet today, they they work hard, they're successful, but they don't seem mm-hmm. to know what it is that they really want in life. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to know from the time I was, you know, a kid that I wanted, I, would, I loved music, and because I loved it, I wanted to pursue it and play it. And um, mm. and uh, until I was about 32 or 33, um, that's the way I felt. And then one day I was on the bandstand at the, at the, at the in Monte Carlo playing with a great band. I mean, great musicians, uh, really good music. But I I realized that I was more interested and more excited about the wines I was drinking in between the gigs <laughs> than I was about what I was playing. And yeah. so I, I it wasn't that I didn't love music. But I realized that my passion for, or the intensity of my passion for the aesthetic, something beautiful, like a, a beautiful piece of music or a beautiful bottle of wine, a beautiful glass of wine, was kind of evolving further towards wine. Uh, right. And eventually it just kind of was a no-brainer for me. Uh, I just thought, well, I want to be, you know, I make music, I'm a musician, I, I want to make wine, I want to be a winemaker. So... Um, Came back to America in 1988, and um, uh, when I was 34, and uh, just got a job at a winery in Long Island, New York, as a cellar guy, and that's how I learned how to make wine. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I read that. It was like uh, late 80s, I believe it was 88, 89, that you took a job in Long in Long Island, I believe it was. And yeah, um, it was a great winery, great great vineyard. I I learned a lot for the several years I worked there. Nice. And, uh, then so somehow, but they didn't pay me very much. That was the problem. I was getting seven dollars yeah. an hour, and you know, I had a uh, young family to support, and I made a lot more money as a musician. So I went back to being a musician full time. But I started writing about wine. That was my wife Jody's idea. She said, "Well, why don't you keep writing about it? That way you keep your foot in the door." And apparently, yeah, I, I noticed I that. I managed to become a writer for the New York Times, and eventually, I became the West Coast editor of the Wine Spectator. Uh, who, which moved me to California in 1995. And I also was blessed with that job. For eight years, I wrote for The Spectator, starting in 92, and um, really learned a lot about wine, got to taste lots of wines, and got to meet a lot of people because my job was not only tasting wine, but it was writing stories just like this one about other winemakers. And so mm-hmm. I, uh, I got to travel all over the world and interview people who made fantastic wines and hear their stories which were very inspiring to me as well. Ultimately, I wanted to make wine again, so I, I left The Spectator in 2000, and I moved to Napa Valley, where I started a little brand called Solo Rosa. I was the first winery to actually only make rosé in America. That was, uh, you talk about being ahead of the curve. I was way too far ahead of the curve, and <laughs> I went out of business in 2008, because uh, oh, no. the, the, the pie had shrunk. Uh, my piece of the pie had shrunk so much by the time the rosé revolution kicked in that uh, I uh, I stopped making only rosé. But uh, somehow in the interim, I got this idea that after tasting some really great Israeli wine up in Napa Valley, uh, my my partner, my then partner Leslie Rudd, who just passed away a few months ago, and I wow, decided sorry. we we wanted to make a really great kosher wine. If they can do it in Israel, let's do it in Napa Valley. So that's how Covenant was started uh, back in 2003. And um, we've been making Covenant. We've grown from a small 500-case brand to uh, a 7,000-case brand here in Berkeley, California, where our winery now is, and also about a 2,500-case brand of Covenant Israel wine uh, that we make Mm -hmm. in Israel. So we're 
we're making wine on in, in two uh, on two continents now. Wow! Well, congratulations on on your conti- continued success. It's it's phenomenal. And like you, I I started to write and I started on Clark Monthly for a very similar reason um, as you. I just wanted to learn more about wine. I figured, well, what better way to do it is than to interview amazing people like yourself, learn the stories. Um, you know, because what I found is um, a lot of the, I don't know, dare I call them the wine one-on-one group, you know, just people that don't, they love wine, they don't know a lot about it, and especially all the, the technicalities and the complexities that, you know, that go into making wine and just from start to finish, you know, we find that the, sto- the stories help, you know, really it resonates with an audience. It makes makes it more real of a, a, a more real of an experience, I guess, because they get to know who Jeff Morgan is as a person, and he has these amazing wines. And I really believe that that also helps um, build brand equity and helps people get ex, you know exposed to the wine and become they they themselves now have a story they can share with their friends and family. Oh, I read this great article. I heard this podcast on with Jeff Morgan and about his Covenant wine and and so. I started thinking about that, and that's really honestly how Uncorked Monthly came about. It's just I learn. I like learning. <laughs> well, you know, I, as a as a reviewer for Wine Spectator mm-hmm. and and other yeah. magazines, um, I tasted you know lots of really really great wines, and mm-hmm. so my goal has always been to make wine that's as mm-hmm. good as um, the wines I have loved the most, and that's that's kind of my my baseline for. You know our own our own wines that we make here at Covenant Berkeley and also Covenant yeah. Israel. Uh, it's really a um, you have to work with what you've got. You try to you know grow or or purchase the best yeah. grapes you can, and then you try to do as little as you can to change the essential nature of those grapes. We, for example, don't even add yeast to our fermentations. All of I our fermentations that. are native yeast. Not because it's necessarily better. There's a lot of amazing wine out there that's made with commercial yeast, but um, I feel that it's um, it, it, it reveals the the true nature of of what's coming out of the vineyard, uh, perhaps better than the addition of a commercial yeast that's designed to bring out fruit forwardness or the body yeah. or whatever tannin or no tannin. <laughs> so so um, right. so we use native yeast and um, we are blessed with uh, exceptional vineyard sources from some exceptional growing regions, whether it's Sonoma County or Napa Valley mm-hmm. or Lodi, uh, in, uh, which is e- uh, east of Napa in California, or the Galilee in Israel or the Golan Heights. All of these places have um, their own particular character, and I, I try to um, translate that into what we put in the bottle. And I, and I can tell you this much. Uh, thank you for sharing some of your amazing wine with us, and it is truly uh, a masterpiece, I believe. The Covenant Cabernet uh, in the in the Covenant Israel, uh, the 2016 Syrah. We so we did our new bottle experience. I'm not going to share what that is yet. You'll get to see that when the article comes out. But I think you'll be pleasantly uh, surprised and happy. Um, but I'll tell you, you did a fabulous job, Jeff. Seriously, you're very welcome. Both. Uh, our new bottle experience is made up of seven individuals, and uh, I like to have at least four of them being industry people, and three are just random friends and family that love to have free wine. And 
give me their honest opinion of a one-on-one. And I think that really blends out the crowd a little, you know, makes a, um, a good outcome. And we use, I don't know if you ever heard of Quinny, but Quinny is an app that we use when we do our ratings and they're on mm-hmm. our website. That's when you see our reviews, we break down the five senses and, and it, it really helps our audience because they want, they don't, a lot of, a lot of our audience, they don't understand what a 90 rating is or, you know, so, I'll, I'll share what that is if you haven't been to our site. Um, not in the I have thing, been to your site. I did actually see it, but you oh. can share it with us uh, on this yeah. podcast if you want. <laughs> no, no, it's not about that. It's just, but the, we're going to be rating you through that system, and yeah. um, I just, you know, it's just a phenomenal uh, product that you're making. And I, you know, what is, is interesting too is I was uh, when when Robert Parker, I found a quote from him on you, and I I was like, wow, that's amazing. Get a get a gentleman like Robert Parker, like the world wine guru, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna read what he said. I mean, you've obviously heard this numerous times, but Robert Parker, the wine guru, wrote of Covenant's 2005 Cabernet Sauvignon. Jeff Morgan continues to make one of the finest kosher wines on planet Earth. Wow, that is huge. Well, that was very kind of of Bob, and um, he's actually been a a great supporter since he tasted our first wines, you know, some yeah. uh, 13, 14 years ago. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, you know, because we make kosher wine, um, we I think we get a little, we're at a, at a bit of a disadvantage only because kosher wine has the reputation of being a lesser wine and probably mm. with good reason up until about 20 years ago, a lot of it was um, made with conquered grapes and conquered grapes are great to eat but they're not necessarily the right species in my opinion for making fine wine now, obviously you can make wine with it um, and then um, so it's taken the world a while to realize that oh kosher wine is really can be as good as non-kosher wine in fact if my wines weren't kosher um, I would make them mm-hmm. the same way as I make them now. The only difference is there's a symbolic uh, issue here about who can touch the wine, and, and uh, yes. typically you should only have, um, if you want to have your little kosher certification on your bottle, you can only have uh, Sabbath observant Jews in the cellar touching the wine. But otherwise, mm-hmm. I mean, and you can't work on the Sabbath, so you know we may want to really get in there on Saturday and work, <laughs> and we can't. But we can go on Saturday night when the Sabbath is over, and we do that. Yeah. So, so we still well, don't there are day. yeah, you know, the, and, and what our audience might enjoy. I mean, it's I mean, obviously there are a lot of uh, obstacles because of the holidays around harvest time. You were mentioning. I read I read somewhere in my research that. Um, because of that, it does add a layer of complexity because you can't work on um, on those holidays, and so you, yeah, but the you grapes have to get keep fermenting. For, the grapes yes. keep fermenting, so we just have to plan okay. our picks around the the few days. Now, there are not lots of days we can't work, but uh, yeah. there are a couple like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and whatever. So, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, it helps you plan your time better, I guess, and makes you a little more focused. You know, it's kind of like a biodynamic yeah. winemaking or organic winemaking. You know, in some ways, it's like. Um, in some ways, it's like uh, giving yourself uh, uh, more hoops to go through. But in order to do that, you need to pay closer attention to what you're doing. And in fact, that might mm-hmm. uh, raise the quality of your wine just because you're more focused, even though yeah. you're you're adding a layer of complexity. But uh, so we don't really think of it uh, too much uh, anymore as a as a as a detriment to. Uh, 
uh, our winemaking process, although occasionally I, I do wonder what was God thinking when he came up with the holidays at, the, at harvest time. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but a, a lot of, a lot of uh, cultures uh, have celebrations at harvest time. We have Thanksgiving, for example, and, um, right. and so that's, I guess that's what was going on then. It's still going on now. Um, yeah. So there you go. Nice. Now I understand um, your your uh, your wife Jody and uh, your daughter Zoe. Zoe now uh, some time ago I can't remember the year Jeff, but um, is is a big part of the business now. And yes. she studied abroad in Israel and speaks Hebrew and helps Jody. I understand with some of that translation and some of that uh, those those partnerships over there. Is that correct? Uh, well, she's. Uh Yes, I mean she's she lives in Israel full time, and uh, she became okay. Israeli uh, and made what we call Aliyah. She she uh, oh. she immigrated to Israel um, four years ago, and okay. uh, she now works with us. She's in charge of sales and marketing and hospitality. So, if anybody who's listening to this wants to go to Israel and have a, a tasting of Covenant wines at our tasting room in Tel Aviv. You know they should contact us uh, on our website, and and we'll set you up with Zoe, who will uh, who will arrange a, a wonderful tasting for you and show you what we're doing. Uh, and it's great to have her there. It's great to have a face behind the behind uh, our brand, a family face behind the brand in Israel full time. Although I'm in Israel probably uh, probably three months a, a year, I'm there every month or so for about two or three weeks. Oh, okay, good. That's that's great to get over there and. So I think, um, uh, you know, I, as as a father, that must make you extra proud, and, and I'm very uh, proud. You, get to, you know, very. I, and I love that about your 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 overall company, and the brand and stuff. It's just it's, you know, family. Um, those 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 types of businesses are near and dear to my heart, and I I just love the fact that as a winemaker. Um, I mean, you seem so humble and so grounded, and yet you're running this very complex kind of business and meeting so many interesting people uh, and, and being able to kind of still produce the, the amazing product you have. So, again, congratulations to that continued success. And Well, the, the bottom exciting. line is that we, we, need to, we need to make great wines. Um, yeah. For our own uh, satisfaction as well as the satisfaction of our customers, so that's yeah. that's what kind of probably keeps me grounded, um, and um, and then uh, the rest is important too. I mean, doing interviews like this, or yeah. um, doing tastings, or or promoting our our, our various wines. Uh, it all it's all important, but it's really yeah. hard. <laughs> and, and anybody who doesn't want to work hard shouldn't get in this wine business. And I think that's what really keeps us humble. Uh, yeah. The amount of effort you have to put out to get your message across you know it's not enough to just make a great wine then you gotta you yeah. gotta introduce it to the world and 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 make sure that people are experiencing it so it's it's a lot of energy that we uh, expend but it's also mm-hmm. very rewarding personally uh i i when i get up in the morning i i look forward to my day and uh yeah. if anybody can say that about their lives they're they're very fortunate yeah, and I and I admire that, and you know, and it also goes on to say I think um, you 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 mentioned in in another uh, article somewhere that I saw that you're on a quest to change the way uh, the Jewish community thinks about and drinks wine. 
Um, wow. You really do. You, you, you have remembered all of this stuff. I'm very, very impressed, Mark. Thank you for, for, for remembering these bullet points because it's true. Um, if I can cut in right now, I, I think that Please. because of the um, – we have a long history and, and connection to wine in the Jewish tradition. Um, every Friday night you, you say a special prayer to bring mm-hmm. in the Sabbath. It's called Kiddush. And, and, uh, and then you say it again on Saturday, and it's a prayer over the wine. The wine kind of opens the door to the spiritual dimension of the Holy Day. And, um, and it's, it has special meaning, but because the Jews were dispersed all over the world and often not in wine regions for the last 2,000 years, it was hard to get the good stuff to make that kiddush. So people uh, maintained the tradition but I think we, in some ways, lost sight of the concept of what is a high-quality wine and what makes great wine. And right. um, it's been, uh, in the last 20 years since I've been, 15 years since I've been making kosher wine, but I was actually reviewing them for the Wine Spectator starting in 1992, um, I, I realized that uh, a lot of Jews and a lot of non-Jews uh, don't realize the important connection of wine to Jewish life and the importance of um, making that connection with a high-quality wine, such as the many wines that are available today in the kosher and non-kosher market. So I'm, I'm trying to wean my people, my tribe, from the um, simple sweet wines that they were used to in my parents' or my grandparents' generation and help them understand that a great bottle of wine will enhance a great meal, whether it's on the Sabbath or whether it's Tuesday night. In fact, in our winery, at lunchtime, we always have a glass or two of wine with lunch. Uh, as long as you're having food, a glass yeah. or two of wine is not going to impair your ability to work uh, well in the afternoon. And so I guess that's my mission. Good wine with good meals, except maybe for breakfast. And uh, you'll be happy in life, <laughs> whether you're Definitely. Jewish or not. I think it's important. Uh, exactly, exactly. You know, I, I, what is the current state of kosher wine? And, and where does the future, or what does the future look like, in your opinion, for kosher well, wine? Well, for kosher wine, there's most definitely a renaissance occurring. I mean, when I reviewed my first kosher wines in the 90s for Wine Spectator, um, I did a blind tasting with a lot of my winemaker buddies. I was still living out on Long Island in New York. And they didn't know it was kosher. They didn't know what was going on. And at one point, I remember this guy named Dan Kleck, who was a winemaker at Palmer Winery back in the day. And he said, he looked at me and he said, gee, these are the strangest wines I've ever had, Jeff. And what are we tasting here? And uh, uh, today, you wouldn't have that experience at all. Today, um, 25 years later, um, winemakers who make kosher wine are either they're educated, you know, Davis or the University of Bordeaux or whatever, or they've been educated by fine winemakers, which is the way I got my education, just uh, on site, working with very talented individuals. And and um, so you don't, the state of kosher wine is very good. I mean, there's, you know, just like in the non-kosher world, there's good wine, there's in-between wine, and there's lots of good wine. So for kosher wine, we have the same thing. We have our best wines and we have our not-so-best wines. But it's very easy to find uh, tremendously good wines today from Israel, from France, from Italy, from Spain, um, and of course from America that are 
or top quality wines that happen to be kosher. I know if you and then if you go to the French Laundry, which is you know probably the most famous restaurant in America, um, yeah. Thomas Keller's three star Michelin in, in the Napa Valley, you'll find Covenant Cabernet on the list. You'll find Covenant Chardonnay on the list, and you'll even find our Covenant Israel Syrah that you just tasted, and the Covenant Israel Adom, which is a blend of red red grapes. Uh, we're the first Israeli winery to actually be on the list at the French Laundry, and it's um, our wines happen to be kosher. They happen to represent a little slice of what I would call Jewish heritage and Jewish culture, and uh, and they just taste really good. And I think for all of those reasons, they're on the list at the French Laundry. It's not just what it tastes like, but it's the story behind the wine that makes a difference. Yeah, fantastic! Oh, I love that. I mean, it's and one congratulations to that. I I, I didn't I didn't uh, know that you guys were there. That's that's quite the uh, accomplishment, I think. Um, being one of the, the top end French restaurants in the world, so that's that's amazing. You know what I loved about when I opened up your your wine, um, just well, first before I say that, the label, um, it, it was so amazing. Um, I love the artwork. What what talk about that? Tell me a little bit about the label, um, on the Cabernet. Is that all of us when we saw that we were just amazed? It was a beautiful label well um you know we call our wine covenant and the word mm-hmm. covenant uh is a word that that uh, implies a, a strong connection between people or between um someone and his legal document <laughs> or mm-hmm. perhaps um um someone and god that's in in the, in the bible both the yeah. jewish and christian bible there are a lot of covenants that exist between uh whomever's being talked about and and god and uh, so we wanted to take a biblical theme for our label without being too, you know, obviously religious. And mm-hmm. and uh, I asked an artist in Napa Valley to um, to work with me on the label. Uh, and she said, well, gosh, I'm not even Jewish. How can I do this, you know, for a kosher winery? I said, well, let's, let's not worry about the kosher thing. Let's worry about the meaning of the word covenant and how yeah. covenant can... You know, bring how the how wine is a covenant that brings all of us together, regardless of our uh, religion or, or heritage. You know, I mean, it's it's at the table where we meet and where we talk, and sharing wine is just uh, kind of the the um, the grease that makes the wheels go around easier and and, and encourages interaction and conversation. So, we looked in uh, in the book of Genesis and we read through uh, the story of Moses uh, taking his people out of Israel, I mean, out of mm-hmm. Egypt to Israel, and um, we also looked at uh, prints of my favorite Jewish artist, uh, who I guess is Mark Chagall, and uh, we found that uh, a, a picture of a stained glass window in in a church in Austria that Chagall designed that uh, he had the, the tablets that you see in our label. We have um, it, some people think it's. Um, uh, I don't know what they think it is, but it, it's it's the tablets of the Ten Commandments, those two round tablets in the back, um, mm-hmm. which, of course, was God's covenant with the Jewish people, that the commandments, and do this and we'll be tight, is what God was saying. So uh, so we have the tablets in the back, and then when Moses came down from the uh, mountaintop, from Mount Zion, with the tablets to share with the Jewish people, um, they blew the shofar, which is the ram's horn trumpet that you'll see someone blowing in the in the label, and uh, yeah. Moses shared the covenant with twelve tribes, each one symbolized by a candle on the label. Why candles? Because candles are we light candles at the beginning of important moments, like the beginning of the Sabbath, for example. So, um, so we have all these 
these uh, themes, but, um, you know, some people see it and some people don't. And, of course, there's a wine glass in there, that, and we call that a kiddush cup uh, to make the the um, the prayer over the wine, the sacramental prayer over the wine. And so we like to think that Moses then shared the good wine, uh, the, the kosher wine with all of the, the people who were there to witness his arrival with the covenant. So it's, um, and then, of course, it's done in the style of Chagall and all those little black squares, if... Uh, if your listeners can see that, the black squares really are just um, kind of a, a reference to the stained glass uh, framing of the of the Chagall window that we saw in this picture. Ah, fantastic! And that's uh, yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense. I mean, it was what a creative way though to bring it. It's almost like this um, very contemporary, but it's it has a deep meaning behind it and. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. We we love learning about the labels that really catch our eyes. I mean, there's a well, lot of wine labels that don't, but when you see we, one, we, you go, wow. So our Israeli labels are also have great symbolism behind them, but they're much mm-hmm. simpler in style. Um, um, yeah. All of our Israeli labels are blue and white uh, because the Israeli flag is blue and white, and so that's a kind of a, yeah. uh, a reference to to our um, to the to our our Israeli uh, heritage and nationality as Jews. And um, uh, we also have the Blue Sea, the Covenant Israel Blue Sea labels, which um, are kind of a reference to the Red Sea labels that we have for our California wines. And it's just the sea from Covenant, big and blown up on the label, but it's kind of a play on words. The Red Sea, obviously, the parting of the Red Sea in Moses, so we call that the ultimate Passover wine. And the Blue Sea, well, we'd already used Red Sea for California but the Mediterranean is quite blue in Israel, and it fits in our color scheme for the for the labels. So we have the blue sea wines from Cal, from Israel. Fantastic. I mean, this this might be an, an off the wall question, but you know, what was what was it like for Jeff Morgan growing up as a kid, and what was your favorite hobby, and why? Well, Jeff Morgan grew up in a very secular environment, even though I grew up in Manhattan. I, I didn't have a Jewish education at all. That kind of came with uh, with the kosher wine challenge, which we did almost on a lark. Um, mm-hmm. So as a kid, um, you know, I was pursuing, I, I, now that I realize that I look back, I was always pursuing good things to eat. <laughs> that was a very, that was a very important part of my life. And uh I was very taste oriented, but I had no idea at the time that you know my search for the best uh, you know bagel in New York or the or the best pizza <laughs> or the best whatever it was that I was uh, you know coveting would uh, would eventually lead me to become a a, a winemaker and and for a while a tastemaker for uh, the uh, the public through my writing. Um, uh, uh, so you know I was a I was. A, I was an active kid. I, I was into sports like a lot of, you know, boys and now girls. I, it would be kind of sexist to say that, but when I was a kid, the, the boys were more sports-oriented. And right. um, But I think it was this search also the great, oh, yes, I was like in love with, you know, pastrami and corned beef sandwiches. So as a, a New Yorker, I had my special spots to find pastrami and and corned beef. I, yeah, I think to, at the time I liked pastrami better, but now I'm more into corned beef. Um, <laughs> and of course, John's <laughs> Pizzeria was my favorite pizza yeah. in New York on Bleecker and Jones. Um, I went there recently, was so disappointed to find that they had sold it. 
still called John's. It still has the same. It was Woody Allen's favorite pizzeria, and oddly enough, it was the pizzeria where my parents had their first pizza back in the 50s when they were just married. And they used to have three different cheeses on it, and they used olive oil, and they cooked it in the the oven, and and, uh, it was just an amazing place. And uh, and now it's um, now it's it's uh, now it's a uh, it ain't it ain't the same. Um, no, that, that's fantastic. So the wine, the food, I mean, it makes a whole lot of sense. But since we're on that topic, I mean, you have a cookbook. Share share a little bit of insight Actually, around the. I, uh, I, I have nine cookbooks. Oh, you have nine cookbooks. I've written I, nine I cookbooks. Missed. Wow, yeah, missed that a one. little bit about that. I did miss that. Have you ever heard of Dean and DeLuca? The, the, oh, yeah. The, I wrote their second. I wrote the Dean and DeLuca Food and Wine Cookbook back in 2001. That was my first cookbook. Uh, have you ever heard of the winery called Domaine Chandon? Mm-hmm. Chandon, like the Champagne House. Mm, I'm going to say no. It does sound familiar, but I'm going to say well, no. Anyway, I'm they had that. a fantastic restaurant. In, well, you've heard of Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy? Oh, oh yes. Okay, well, they own Domaine Chandon. And, um, oh, okay. So uh, anyway, I wrote their cookbook. Um, have you heard of Plump Jack Wines? I don't know if you've heard oh, of yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, they, they had a, so they had a series of restaurants, uh, and I wrote their cookbook, and I wrote uh, wow. the Working Parents Cookbook back when our kids were little to tell you know people how to enjoy their lives without worrying about what their kids don't like, and I wrote a book about rosé, which was a cookbook back when I was you know the king of rosé. So um, I, I did all this because I was struggling to get Covenant going, and I didn't have a salary, so I had to write books. <laughs> I had to write cookbooks. Wow, impressive. <laughs> and uh, our our latest cookbook, which is the ninth, um, is um, is the Covenant Kitchen, food and wine for the new Jewish table. So it's the first book we've written that really focused on um, our our own story and our own Jewish heritage, and um, and uh, it's uh, kosher. I mean, and, or let's say that there's nothing in it that's not kosher. So it, it is indeed a kosher cookbook, um, and uh, it's uh, a lot of Mediterranean recipes. Uh, that are inspired by the time I lived in France, and Jody lived there with me for a while as well. Um, so it's a lot of uh, uh, fresh vegetables and fresh meats and olive oil-based cooking as opposed to um, butter and, and maybe northern European cooking. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 did we send you one? I'll have to send no, you one. No, no. I, I, uh, I, I didn't see it, but... Uh... I, you, no, you don't have to do that. I, I'll uh, I'll contribute. But you can and, also get it on Amazon. It's 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 pretty cheap now. It's been out for two three years, and once you get to that okay. point, it's it's uh, it, you know it's, it's way reduced. But anyway, every recipe, as is in all of our books, except maybe the Working Parents, um, all of our recipes have wine pairings, and um, because I don't believe that a great meal exists without a great wine, or at least a good wine, and so yeah. we don't recommend any particular wines, but we talk about. Um, wine styles and how to pair these styles of wine, i.e., light-bodied wines or full-bodied wines or rich wines or, you know, tannic wines or, um, <clears throat> you know, lemony wines. How to pair them with various uh, styles of cooking or styles that you might find in your plate. You might have a light-bodied meal, or you might have a rich meal, and so we believe that the easiest thing is to try to pair similarly styled wines and dishes and so every recipe without fail 
has a mm-hmm. wine pairing, and that would be, oh, this would go great with a full-bodied you know, Chardonnay, or a, this would go great with a, a light, fresh Sauvignon Blanc, for example. So that's right. how we, we keep it, um, we keep it uh, hopefully useful to the to readers so they're not going out and looking for any particular bottle of wine, but they're, they can, they're, it opens up the whole shelf of wines in their mm-hmm. wine shop uh, to uh, endless possibilities that would work well with uh, the recipes that they're going to cook from our book. Absolutely. It's published by uh, Random House, Shocken, okay. the Shocken division of Random House, or it's actually Random House Knopf now, and um, uh, it uh, we enjoyed working with them. There are lots of there are over a hundred recipes. They all have um, most of them have color photos of the of the um, of the dishes, and uh, we also tell the story of Covenant and why we why we started the winery and what our life was like in Napa Valley when we lived there and how it changed a bit when we moved to um, here in Berkeley, California. Ah, wonderful, wonderful. So when you meet and greet and other winemakers around California, um, you guys sit around and kind of talk about the, the war stories of the winemaking industry and uh, what's the next greatest thing, or what? What's that? What's that? What does a conversation amongst winemakers consist of aside from your wines, maybe? Usually, it starts off with uh, "What are we eating?" <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's a great and, way to start uh, off yeah. any conversation. <laughs> yeah, and uh, then um, unless we're having a problem with something, we tend not mm-hmm. to talk about wine that much. Um, but yeah. it's nice to have. Uh, you know, friends uh, in the industry with whom we can troubleshoot also. So, you know, yeah. if you've got a stuck fermentation, for example, or your, I don't know, your your grower is giving you, you know, something to worry about, and you call a buddy and you say, well, what do you do in a situation like that? It's nice to be able to get that kind of advice and support from, from your colleagues. But really, I think uh, regardless of what uh, industry you're in, obviously if you if you share the same line of work, you have shared experiences, and so that yeah. that creates a certain covenant, uh, correct? That's and, true. Um, and uh, obviously, all winemakers that I know are interested in wine, uh, which mm, would also yeah. extend to an interest in um, communities around the world that make wine. Definitely. And so, and we travel a lot to visit those communities and taste their wines. So it's a very, um, it's a very um, rewarding uh, and interesting uh, connection that we have uh, among winemakers. Uh, we yeah. can discuss, we, we, we discuss, yeah, occasionally we'll discuss, you know, who won the, who won the ball game, but typically our, our discussions revolve around um, lifestyle and how mm-hmm. people live and, and what lifestyles we, we enjoy the most. Ah, that's, that's, that's awesome. That is really nice. You know, and it, it's interesting because I think, you know, like you, you talk about like, you know, wine is, is kind of like the, it, it makes, it forms communities in a, in a sense, meaning bringing people absolutely. together, right? I could so, have said that better. You're absolutely yeah, right. And, and I think it's a, it's, it's one of only a few products that I think exist in today's world that is a universal part of that that connection and that brings people together regardless of our backgrounds our cultures our race it's it's something that's such a commonality not a commonality but a um just a, 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 a central 
Yes, thank you. That's a great way to put it. A bridge across, you know, all of those things. Um, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I I have a, a lot of uh, friends with whom I share a, a love of fine wine and great meals. And mm-hmm. regardless of our political um, persuasions, we yeah. seem to get along just fine. And I think that more people should spend more time eating and drinking together um, because it is a conduit for uh, connection and for conversation that would allow us to, um, I think, overcome a lot of the challenges we have um, today in the world with simply getting along. Well, Jeff, I tell you, it is an honor and pleasure to... um to have it to meet you here today and i really do appreciate you spending time with Uncorked monthly myself here and all right mark well i look forward to meeting you in person and i thank, thank you, you for taking the time uh to not only research this podcast but to do the podcast so i look Fantastic. forward to uh seeing the finished product wonderful jeff enjoy your day thanks again okay okay thank you thank you for joining us at Uncorked monthly and for this featured interview with jeff morgan with covenant wines Tune in next time to listen to the stories of winemakers from around the world with Uncorked Monthly.